Okay, I am absolutely delighted um, to welcome you to a protesting inequalities session, which should be very, very exciting because we have a range of people who've been protesting inequalities for some time. They've also been protesting in very different ways. <laughs> as you can already see, and in very different spaces. We have a, a, a global mapping going on as well. So we're going to get a huge interaction of different types of protest. Obviously, there's lots more than we could ever present. And the really important thing to remember is people are protesting all the time. It's very rare that we take things lying down. And if we do, we suddenly remember that we should have done something about it. So protest is really, really, really crucial. Today's session is going to involve five different speakers, very different speakers doing very different things, and it's going to be very tight on time. So I will be strictly uh, timing people, so please don't think I'm being rude to them. Um, as I um, cut off and whatever. And then hopefully there'll be time at the end for questions so you can participate. So if you have any questions, remember to make sure you record them and we receive them at the end. The second part, the, the panel speakers will be recorded and your questions may be recorded as well. If you don't want them recording, let me know. So we're going to kick off with my favourite queer femme performance artist, Bird La Bird. Bird has been doing all sorts of protests for a huge amount of time. Since I first met her in Manchester many, many years ago, you were protesting there in various different ways. She's a, a brilliant digital artist as well as a performance artist. So today she's going to give you the queer... Thank you very much, Bird. That was greatly appreciated. I think one question we're going to keep thinking about is where does violence lie? Where is the act of violence? Which is the act of violence? So keep that in mind as I begin to introduce our panel. So I think Avia's going to be next, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, can you go in the middle, Bird? Yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Oops. So we're going to we're not going to have PowerPoints next. No. <laughs> we're going to have Avia, uh, Sarah Day just speaking without yep. PowerPoints, which is very unusual. Old school. <laughs> Old school. Avia's been an activist for a long period of time in various different ways, in lots of different protests. So she's going to tell you all about that. Welcome, Avia. Um, hi, yeah, so I'm mostly going to be speaking about um, my involvement in a group called Sisters Uncut and the ways in which Sisters Uncut have tried to basically come up with some creative ways to challenge um, austerity and um, cuts to uh, much, much needed services. Um, so Sisters Uncut started in 2014 um, by a group of survivors of domestic and sexual violence and sector workers um, and at that time, I was working as a domestic violence advocate myself, supporting people. Um, and around 2014-13, that was when, you know, austerity was really starting to be felt on the ground. Um, you know, the lack of housing, the, the, the changes in regulations that meant that people just, rights were, were really eroding away. Um, and my position as someone who was trying to support people... I was really starting to notice that the kind of information that I had to give people was really changing and, and the kinds of things that I had to, you know, break to people was changing to be able to tell people that, you know, if you leave a really violent situation, 
I can't guarantee that you'll ever have secure housing ever again and, and having to break that to someone and, and try and manage their expectations and, um, and, and tell people, you know, these are the kinds of choices you now have because of the government and the choices that they've made about your life um, was actually really, really heartbreaking. And it becomes, you know, as someone who's working in that, it becomes quite soul-destroying. Um, so a group of us decided to get together and to start to try and find ways to challenge it. So um, we founded Sisters Uncut, um, which is a direct action group which is specifically fighting cuts to domestic violence services. Um, we're a women-only organisation, um, but we're open to um, cis, trans and intersex women. Um, and we organise... Um, on the basis of um, intersectional feminism. So that means we try to make it a space that is um, working in the interests of, of, of all women um, coming from all kinds of different kinds of backgrounds. Um, after we founded, um, we came up with a few different actions to try and um, highlight some of the, the really horrible cuts to, to the welfare state that was happening and largely was being affected was affecting women more than more than other people. So women were being impacted first and were being impacted hardest. I mean, the cuts to housing, cuts to legal aid, um, you know, the, the the amount of refuge spaces that were avail um, no longer available, um, services for women of colour that would almost all of them are gone in this country at the moment. Um, these are the things we were trying to focus on. Um, I guess we came up with a few different actions. The one, I guess, that made us quite well known was when we uh, crashed the um, premiere of the film Suffragette. Um, we occupied the red carpet and used the tagline, Dead Women Can't Vote. And we kind of used, <laughs> we kind of used that as, as a way of illustrating this was quite a big celebration of, of women's rights and how far women's rights have come since the suffragettes bravely um, fought for the right for women to vote. But we were saying, look, while two women a week are being murdered at the hands of a partner, you know, there's so much more that needs to be done. We're, we're nowhere near there. And we can celebrate, but we also need to recognise where women's lives are now. Um, and it's all very well to gain a vote, but if women are being murdered because they don't have housing, they don't have support, they don't have benefits, they don't have these things, then, you know, the achievements that have been made are really limited. It was an amazing action. I was there on the red carpet. Helena Bonham Carter was there. It was weird. <laughs> but it, it really catapulted um, our message and what we were trying to achieve um, into the media. And one of the things that was really amazing about what that did was it meant that we grew as a movement. Because we had, had done that and, and had got that attention in the media, groups across the country wanted to set up and... Um, most of the groups across the country that wanted to set up specifically wanted to save local services in, in different regions across the country. So Portsmouth, um, in Bristol, Doncaster, um, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Brighton, yeah, all over the country, Sisters Uncut groups were, were cropping up, which was absolutely amazing. And I'll just share you, with you a couple of stories that um, like, I think illustrates how... Um, taking direct action can really achieve things. So in, in Doncaster, for instance, um, the makeup of the women in Doncaster were, were women in Sisters Uncut were quite different. A lot of them were a lot older than the London-based sisters, um, had 
um, been involved in supporting their husbands during the miners' strike, and that was their introduction to, to politics. And now Doncaster Women's Aid has been about to be closed, which was um, a really massive lifeline for them. Um, and by this point, they were actually, um, a lot of them were pensioners. And so they decided that, you know, we've got nothing to lose. Let's just, like, lie in the streets, um, stalk the councillors wherever they go, every public meeting that they're at, basically harass them. And within six months, they'd gained Doncaster Women's Aid back. So it was, like, wow. really, really inspirational. And I think it was quite inspirational as that movement grew to us in London in terms of, like, gaining a real diversity of tactics so we'd gone from a very stump-based movement to something that was much, much more community-based and much more about trying to fight um, uh, for services that are local and trying to build much more of a community-based movement. Um, and yeah, fast forward to today, I think um, what we're working on now is some of the impacts, even though we you know, have get, managed to gain a few victories, the impacts of austerity is such that as the welfare state has really shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, and as um, Theresa May and the right-wing government have invested in things like the criminal justice system instead of the welfare state, what we're seeing now is a lot of survivors of domestic violence actually finding themselves embroiled in the criminal justice system, getting arrested either because they're migrants and their um, immigration status is being um, prioritised or because it, you know, they're fighting back or because there's no services, there's no way to get out of this situation. Um, so what we're trying to do is um, highlight the fact that the criminal justice system really is not supporting survivors the way in which people like Theresa May is claiming and is actually um, extremely harmful in a lot of women's lives. Um, and we're trying to fight that, essentially. The, the government are trying to bring into a new domestic violence and abuse bill, which is ramping up the criminal justice um, sanctions um, um, and uh, which are already impacting much more disproportionately women again. Um, so we're trying to stop that. We're trying to bring in a domestic violence bill that actually supports people, that um, focuses on housing, that focuses on um, the financial support, you know, the childcare that women actually want and pe what they've asked for and which that they've said um, will help them rather than a criminal justice system which is, is um, criminalising them and is actually not helpful in something that they don't want. Um, and I think I just want to finish on. Um, is Go that, on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, just, just want to finish on this idea that I feel like we've we've achieved quite a lot in terms of trying to fight um, austerity by taking action. And I guess, you know, a question I want to put out to all of you is, you know, austerity affects many, many, many people. But I want to think everyone to think about what kind of action can you take in your daily lives and what kind of action can you take around you to try and challenge that? Because I think we've made a, a lot of achievement, but we, we, need to, we need to keep going further. So that's a question I've kind of put out to everyone. Thank you very much. No, we need, an, we need Armina's presentation up next. Well, Unless it's it, Olga, do you want to go next? That's probably easy. <laughs> okay, we can do that. Do we'll change the order. <laughs> okay, all right. So as you can see, the next speaker is going to be Olga, who's come down from Manchester and who explores lots of different forms of protest. Is that okay? Yeah, You're perfect. All right. Yeah, we have a badass woman connection, a Mancunian connection, an art connection. It's great. It's so wonderful to be up here with such a fantastic group of people. So, 
Yeah, I, I, I study protests. That's what I do. Um, I study specifically these moments of mass mobilization where about one million people come out onto the streets of capital cities. So whether it was in Argentina, in, in, in Buenos Aires in 2001, when on December 19th, the president called the state a siege out of nowhere, banning people to uh, gather publicly, and people started banging their pots outside of windows, slowly making their way down to the bottom of their buildings, and walking together en masse, about 500,000 people in the evening, walking to the city center. Or about four years later, when Ukraine, the country where I'm from, uh, about 500,000 people turned out onto the Maidan in Independence Square to protest against what they saw as a, ma a significantly fraudulent election where the repressive regime was just trying to bring their own candidate into power, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who, by the way, lost that election after all those protests, but a few years later was elected nonetheless in 2010. And then in 2013, he was already increasingly becoming more and more repressive in Ukraine, and he reneged on a campaign promise that got him elected. He said he will no longer sign an association agreement with the EU. And slowly but surely, some protests, nearly nine years exactly to the date of the Orange Revolution, uh, started to form. They weren't very big, so they didn't quite reach my research interest quite yet. They were still very impressive. And then the regime did the absolutely most ridiculous thing ever. In the middle of the night, tried to clear the square of about 100 students, university students and journalists, brutally repressing them in the middle of the night. This was what happened the day after. At the same time, when the whole world was looking at Ukraine, you might have heard about the Euromaidan in Ukraine. This was happening in, in Venezuela in 2014. The two most significant protest events in Venezuela were happening in 2014 and in 2017. You might have heard about it in the news these days, but there have been hundreds of thousands of people protesting over and again. Yet the world did not really wake up to this until recently. So I study what motivates and mobilizes ordinary people to join in these extreme moments of mass mobilization. So what I'm going to tell you today is just a few patterns of what I've uncovered over 15 years of research that started here at the LSE, so that's really nice to come back for that. I've conducted over 500 interviews, various focus groups, protest participant surveys on site when the protests are happening, and various nationally representative surveys and secondary surveys. So is it the youth or the really poorly termed millennials leading the fight? Well, the, sure, youth and students are there. They're very important early joiners to protest events, but they're just simply not enough for these moments of mass mobilization. In each of these instances, you see a cross-cleavage coalition of people from different socioeconomic groups, different ages, and in most cases from different parts of the country. And actually, what we would, most of us would consider youth in our research students and youth, represent only about 35% of protest participants. And I think what is often forgotten is this, the grandmothers, the retirees, which are about 12 to 15% in all those protest events that I... Yeah, 
<laughs> and it, this is an incredibly, the, the grandparents or the retirees are an incredibly important group in these. This is Oksana. She was there for every single day of the Yevromaidan. She also helped us get incredible data along the way. And she explained to us that she was the guardian of the protest when the students and those who had to go to work could not be there. And she was indeed there to the very last days of the most brutal repression that took place. Another question that I'm often asked, is it all about the money? Okay, it has to be absolutely about the economy and deprivation. And if it's not about the economy and deprivation, then it absolutely has to be about foreign financing. Data doesn't show this. And I don't know, you know, whether it's qualitative data or whether it's quantitative data, it's not. I went to Argentina and I expected people to tell me about the crisis. And this is not what they told me. They told me it's about my rights, stupid. And it's about my political rights. It's that the president, in the midst of a political and economic crisis, decided to take away our last right that we had. They lived through the junta. These people had protesting for Argentines is incredibly personal and important. In Ukraine, everyone talked about foreign financing. Those people who actually followed the money trail, which I did and wrote about in my book, would then know that, in fact, the majority of the financing for that protest event came from within the country, and that foreign financing did not, in fact, peak leading up to the 2004 Orange Revolution. Um, but worst of all is this assumption that foreign actors know who to fund and how. Right? They don't. They hedge their bets, and oftentimes very poorly. So they did hedge their bets on one particular activist and one particular social movement organization that took a lot of trips to Cancun. Okay? Well, Venezuela must be about the economy, right? Right? It must be. And if it's not about the economy, then it has to be about the Americans trying to fund these people. Oh. Well, that should be the other way around. That's interesting. First time using PowerPoint in many years, so I use LaTeX. But this, anyways, if you, if you can read statistic <laughs> outputs the wrong way around, then you would see that what actually seems to matter, and we've done now longitudinal analyses, we've conducted our own surveys of the protesters in Venezuela with Iñaki Sarguazo, and we have conducted post-protest surveys, various things, and we're finding that it's trust, and it's not interpersonal trust, but it's trust in political institutions. You can be affected by the economy. You can have very negative views of Maduro. You can have very high levels of support for the opposition. But if you do not think that the political institutions in that country, that political elite in opposition, are able to steer that ship through the storm after you risk your life, you're not going to turn out to protest. Finally, I'm often asked about the role of social media in mobilization processes. It's all about a hashtag revolution, don't you know? It's not. It really isn't. But and I wish people would stop talking about hashtag revolutions. Social media is incredibly important. It has facilitated the speed at which we can communicate. It has facilitated our coordination capacities, myself and the protests that I'm involved. But the majority of protesters who turn out to these mass protest events actually get their news from television. Whether it was in Cairo, this is what the um, Arab barometer showed us, my protest surveys in, in Venezuela and in Ukraine, various other, this is what's happening. Way more important are not social media, but social networks. Whether your family and friends are going to protest has a much higher correlation to bringing you out there. And you are more, much more likely to 
believe what your friends and family tell you about protest events. This is because social media is a double-edged sword. We all know this, right? Um, and just as it speeds up, sorry, just as it speeds up information, it also, it also very much leaves activists exposed. So you're more likely to be the target of state repression if you are highly active on social media. The one thing that social media does do, as I said, help us pass on information, coordinate. Two really interesting things. Egyptians were using Ukrainian videos on how to make a Molotov cocktail. I'm not into any kind of violent tactics of protest, but that's certainly the case. And Venezuelan students have told me how, at 2014, so frustrated that the world wasn't paying attention to them, they were gathering and organizing documentary showings of the Ukrainian protests to try to get some inspiration and learn from them. So, that's me. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so Armina next. Who are you? Who's, yeah, are the slides coming up on this one? Okay, no. I can well, speak without slides. While Armina's sorting that out, <laughs> I can, that's fine. I can I do can... the introductions if you want while that's going on. So we were going to do very, very brief introductions so that everybody could speak and then we go into questions. No, I'll start. Right. Right. Because she's yeah. going to start. So I'm going Armina to start. Here, the I'm... LST. <laughs> So what I'm going to do is um, drawing on the research I've been conducting since 2010 in five different countries um, with colleagues is to pose the question, why is it so difficult to challenge inequalities? So specifically looking at why inequalities themselves are difficult to challenge. So I'm going to break it down, since I only have five minutes, into three factors that I argue affect how it's difficult to address inequalities. So first of all, I would argue it's about the ideas and that to challenge inequalities, we have to challenge the hegemonic narratives, the dominant narratives. What is common sense? The enduring myths. So one of them is obviously we can't afford to tackle inequalities. It's too expensive. Then there is, we talked about austerity. There is no alternative to austerity, right? We're told again and again and again. And then, of course, there is the American dream, and Thomas Carlyle seems to have embodied that, that if you just work a little bit harder, work hard enough, you too can pull yourself out of poverty. And look at, I did it, you know, so, which ignores the, all of the structural inequalities and factors. So how do activists, how do individuals who are resisting inequalities address these? And this is the difficult bit because you know, when you bring up an idea, you're often told, oh, that's crazy, that makes no sense. So sometimes the most radical ideas of today might have been, you know, such as having a welfare state, some things we accepted. So it's about thinking through this. And to, before I go on to the next slide, I just want to remind you that when, you know, when Occupy began to talk about the 1% and the 99%, that wasn't a discourse that had entered our um, our lexicon until they began to talk about it in that way. Now, is it still resonant? Has it led to policy changes or any kind of impact? I think that remains to be seen, and we need to research how that discourse has developed. But the point of fact is, from Pope Francis all the way to the IMF director, Christine Lagarde, we are now talking about inequality more than we did a decade ago. Now, moving on to the next factor is actors. 
And who are the actors who are protesting and mobilizing against inequalities? Now, I'm only focusing here on the sphere of civil society, the space of civil society. So in our research, we've looked at individual activists, social movements, NGOs, trade unions, and political parties. Now, all, obviously, they're all working in civil society, but they have variable access to an ability to shape the policy agenda. The ability of individual activists can't be compared to that of NGOs or trade unions. So people talk about, well, it's important to link up, to scale up. But of course, these are all coming with costs because by scaling up or building alliances, activists or social movements also risk losing their own identities, losing their mission, and sometimes being disciplined into particular narratives, losing, um, in a sense, what they were mobilizing for. So I think we need to take into consideration that element. Moreover, one of the things that I've been doing is looking not just how actors mobilize against inequalities outside in terms of society, but with um, my colleague Anita Peña Saavedra, we worked with Sister Zankat to look at how do you challenge inequalities within a movement? How do you put intersectionality into practice? Not just thinking about the society as a space of hierarchies, but also movements and organizations as spaces. And that's just been published in the Sociological Review, in case anyone is interested. So finally, let's look at political contexts, because political contexts, theorists of political opportunity structures often tell us are very important. And indeed, they are. So how to link to the theme of our festival is how do people challenge inequalities in the context of growing national or right-wing populism in what our festival calls the New World Disorder. So this is a very big question because what we find, first of all, is that you have multiple voices, as Olga was also talking about. It's not people who are from one particular background or one particular ideological persuasion. So it's all jostling for attention, as Nancy Fraser would talk about, for recognition, for representation, and demands of redistribution. And of course, this is linked to James Scott's work, who said, whose rights, whose needs are legible and visible? And we can't assume that it's only the people who shout the loudest, because sometimes deals are made in back rooms about who gets what. So we need to be aware of how power flows and where power flows. So all of this jostling, all of these demands, make a question about where are we in terms of the, you know, the global context around inequalities and what in our diverse societies are the basis of social solidarity. We can't assume that it's a particular kind of identity around which people mobilize. And Nancy Fraser has even talked about how what we are seeing is, on the one hand, the reactionary populism, which is xenophobic and can be you know, very racist at times, but is for the welfare state or is for social justice, very strangely. But on the other hand, you have progressive neoliberalism. So these would be people who are for things like LGBT rights, same-sex marriage, and so forth, women's rights. But at the same time, they are very much against redistributive policies, against progressive taxation, and very firmly um, supportive of neoliberal policies. So where do you create the social solidarities in order to launch 
the struggles against inequalities. And I'm specifically using inequalities in the plural to indicate that it's not just about income, it is about how everything connects in terms of how people experience inequalities through an intersectional lens. That went very quickly. <laughs> okay, and the last thing, because I'm almost out of time, is to think about the ways forward. And this is where my research is heading in the future, is about when these protests began in the beginning part of the decade, um, few knew how they would develop, and few recognized that there would be such a big backlash as well. So I think, first of all, we need to think about success and failure, not in only productivist terms and only thinking about social policy or electoral changes, but we need to think about what do we mean by success. Have new, for instance, ideas and narratives emerged that didn't exist 10 years ago? Have new actors, new coalitions emerged, new political parties emerged that didn't exist 10 years ago or that are taking things forward in a different way? And are there new spaces of protest that we didn't imagine? So uh, I would say, you know, I'm mildly optimistic, but also a realist. So I do realize we live in a very precarious and very difficult time. But at the same time, I do see the struggles and I applaud them. So thank you for the Yes, it should be. Can we make sure that the PowerPoint's on there? So while that's happening, um, say introduce Tamila Lankina, who's from the LSC in the Department of International Relations, so has done lots of research in lots of different spaces, uh, a specialist on Russia. That's yeah. correct, yeah. more or less accurate. <laughs> and with a lot more PowerPoint slides, so I will be. <laughs> I think I have about seven. I was okay. asked to be short and sweet, so yep. I'll, I'll keep my comments brief. I decided... Uh, in some ways, I'm picking up on, on the themes that all our panelists raised already. Um, and at the same time, taking a slightly different angle, I decided to call my presentation Uphill Struggle. Uphill Struggle, why? Because it is about how protesters in an authoritarian setting deal with a regime an autocracy, uh, in, in, in the case that I'm analyzing Russian authoritarian regime, that is constantly creatively adapting, tactically, coming up with ever new strategies to manipulate information on protests, to repress, to find foreign sources of deflecting uh, public attention, to deflect blame from its own ills. And this is very much what I'm finding in over 10 years of research into, oops, I think I just, into protest in Russia. So uh, most people, as has already uh, been mentioned, pr pr people protest in all kinds of contexts, and it's a, it's a daily occurrence. And Russia, despite being an authoritarian state, is not different. So this is the data I've been gathering over the last uh, more than 10 years on protest events um, that happen across uh, the Russian Federation, from uh, large cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg to very small urban and even rural areas. And protests in Russia is a daily occurrence. Hundreds of protests occur in various localities every, um, every, uh, every year. What we find also that there are, there's a different issue dimension. Um, so I, in, in my data, I distinguish between socioeconomic 
political protests, uh, that is those that explicitly and directly challenge the regime, for instance, during elections when electoral fraud is perpetrated, and um, socioeconomic protests, the ones that are coded orange, and that are probably most relevant to this panel and the, and the topic we're, we're exploring today on socioeconomic inequalities. And we see that, for instance, protests, political protests peak around 2011 when uh, Tens of thousands of people took to the streets in, uh, in, across Russia to protest electoral fraud, and then in 2012, the re-election of Vladimir Putin and those, uh, to the presidency, and those elections were, by many accounts, considered to be fraudulent. But we also see that as a share of protests, socioeconomic protests, the orange-shaded here, have been on the rise, and these... Uh, two comparative graphs, uh, pie charts rather, demonstrate that. So we see that in 2007-2012, on this pie chart, they probably constituted about a third of all protests, whereas now 50 or even more percent of protests in Russia are around bread and butter type of socioeconomic issues. And the question is why? Well, you've all heard about the annexation of Crimea, the militarization of Russia, uh, the increasingly kind of muscular securitization of the of Putin's authoritarian polity. And that comes at a cost, because these very expensive weapons uh, po policies mean that Russia has been cutting social services, so it's not just in Britain. We have our own austerity, but that's driven by a very different set of uh, causes, namely the militarization uh, of Russia. Um, cutting into people's pensions. So pensioner protests, for instance, have been on the rise. Um, taking away uh, from public services, uh, you know, payment to uh, public sector employees, wages, etc. they have been declining. So the result is that there are ma many more protests around bread and butter issues in Russia occurring throughout the country. But the question is, who do protesters blame? Do they blame the authoritarian regime in power? Blame attribution, as we know from a very rich social movement scholarship, is a very important dimension of whether protesters succeed because they have to pin the blame to the kind of the right sources. Do they blame the corrupt autocracy? Not necessarily, because if we see a look at the socioeconomic protests, we, we find that uh, very often, if you look at this gray sort of bar, very often protesters blame local authorities, corrupt mayors, unscrupulous developers for their ills, or industrial managers. In other words, they blame a lot of different actors, but in a kind of very localized way. They don't necessarily blame the authoritarian regime in power. Well, one explanation for that is that it is perhaps not safe to go around say, saying Putin go. This is what people did in 2011, 2012 during those mass protests. And a lot of them found to their peril that they ended up in jail or you know, suffered other kinds of repression. Maybe it's simply safer to, to pin the kind of blame on other actors other than the national regime uh, because there is also political repression going on, and, and, uh, and, and uh, again, my data capture these dynamics, so more than 30% of all protests in some years, like in 2007, were violently uh, repressed. 
Um, that involved either police brutality or people simply dragged away or other forms of kind of violence and, and repression. So that might be one explanation. But we can also see from this chart that it only stops, goes this far, because in some years, for instance, after 2013, we see a decline, uh, although in 2016 there's a rise again in repression, but still not as much as in the earlier years. And the explanation for that is that kind of tactical adjustment and adaptation that I'm talking about. Modern day autocracies are not like the Stalins, the Hitlers, you know, the Maos of, of, of the past. They do not simply throw people into jail en masse or create heinous kind of camps where uh, thousands of people have to ma marinate for, for decades. This is what happened in Stalinist Russia. That's not what modern autocracies do. They are very savvy with media manipulation. And this is what some of you have, some of the other panelists have already alluded to. So what I've also done, uh, in addition to gathering data on protest events, I've also pursued media analysis of how Russian media, state-controlled and independent media, cover information on protests. Do they present protesters as kind of nice, happy, clappy people, like on this image here of a celebrity, Russian TV personality, in the middle of one of those protests taking a selfie of herself, smiling, positive, nice image, or do they present them like on this image here? The political leaders leading protests as the Politburo, paid for by the West, has been womanizers, etc. And this is how, for instance, this guy, Boris Nemtsov, who was subsequently slayed, slain, a uh, politician or assassinated. Um, this is how these guys have been portrayed. And my media analysis kind of take, uh, shows us the highs and the lows. The lows, if you look at the lines going uh, uh, down, it means the lows of how protests are framed as leading to violence, disorder, paid for by the West, uh, and led by unscrupulous, womanizing, and otherwise corrupt politicians. And in many ways, that is a successful uh, strategy. Or another strategy is to side with pro protesters that uh, pursue uh, protests that pursue populist causes. This is what happened in 2013 when there were xenophobic uh, nationalist right-wing neo-Nazi riots against migrants in, in a, a, a suburb of Moscow where migrant, uh, their cars were vandalized, the markets where they sell vegetables, they were also kind of vandalized. But the way the media covered those protests, the state-controlled media, was quite mild. And we saw the beginnings of the kind of support for populism as a way for deflecting the blame from, these, uh, from some of the issues that the regime itself have brought about, and finally, they deflect the attention in the country by pursuing foreign adventures. And this is what happened with when Russia went into the Crimea, and the result, protests, I'm not saying this necessarily uh, correlation means causation, but we see protests have gone down, but Putin's popularity skyrocketed, as you see from this public opinion. Uh, sorry, the red lines here. And I'll, I'll stop there, but you can see it's very much an uphill struggle because protesters have to deal with this machinery of the state that combines repression and media manipulation as well as kind of foreign policy and other techniques to adapt to these mounting 
uh, challenges of popular discontent. Thank you very much. Wow, what a diverse panel. We have 15 minutes for questions, uh, which could range from militarism <laughs> to domestic violence to queer homophobic to actually almost any form of protest. What does protest look like and what is a violent act? So if you have questions, please raise your hand and a microphone will be right in the middle here. So are there microphones coming? And then if I get you next, okay. Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to ask, how do we resist the sort of commercialization of our protest movements like pride and feminism so that they retain their power? Who would like to take that? Kath, you're obviously bird. Bird. Kath is drag name. Yeah, well, I mean, probably uh, as, sorry, where, where did that question come from? It's the young. Hello there. Yeah, so you're probably aware of, of a lot of the protests against Pride um, because there are many of them in many different cities. And uh, in, um, in London, uh, for, for many years now, there's been different types of resistance towards Pride, whether it was uh, Nigel Farage being invited to uh, front the mar march a few years back, um, or the way that um, trans women have been treated at Pride, where like there's been people being thrown out of the toilet and that sort of creating spontaneous protests, or the involvement of banks and, and corporations. So I'd, I think that for, for a lot of people that I know, when um, we go to Pride, it may be that you join your section of the march under a particular cause that you're passionate about, but also there's lots of other, you know, there's always an alternative to Pride at, in London, for, for instance. Um, so I think there's, there's ongoing resistance, and I think also um, against, like, the way that, uh, queerness is co-opted by neoliberal um, institutions, for example, to um, to put the uh, rights of LGBTQI um, more vulnerable people at the centre. Um, so, you know, putting um, migrant rights as being the focus rather than equal marriage. Yeah. All of that is going on. Oh, God, why did I forget it? UK Black Pride on the day afterwards. That's the best pride. Sorry, I should have just said that. Yeah. So, so we avoid commercialisation by finding alternative events that would decommercialise that which is at the moment lucrative. So every time something gets an emergent form, gets commercialised, we look for the next one. Is yeah. that all right? Okay. Uh, it was it was down here and then up there. Yeah. What factors determine whether a political protest or like some political movement uh, affects public opinion? Uh, I'm particularly thinking in the British context, although I like thoroughly think that anti-austerity that austerity is a terrible idea. It never really um, the general public never bought into it as a slogan, and I'm also thinking about like the people's vote protest recently. Has that changed public opinion in any way? 
Oh, Mina, that's quite. <laughs> you think? Yeah, oh, Avia, would you? Which, why don't, yeah, no, yeah. You go ahead. Why don't you and start then, on that? Well, I don't know whether or not I would agree that the general public's um, opinion around austerity is that they haven't bought into whether it's bad or not. I think it's quite complicated in terms of how people feel about it and how um, what people's action is, because um, there's two different things there. Obviously, like. I'm part of a movement that's trying to fight austerity through direct action. Obviously, most people, that's not what they're doing. But I think people are resisting austerity in lots and lots of different ways um, in their communities that isn't necessarily about activism. Um, in every community, like every community that I've ever been in, every um, estate that I've ever lived on, there's been like usually a woman whose uh, job it is to sort out everyone's benefits, help them out, make sure you go down to you know the, the benefits office or the ESA or whatever, blah, blah, blah. People have all sorts of different ways of resisting austerity that isn't necessarily about protest, but it's about supporting each other. So I don't necessarily agree that about whether or not people have bought into it. I think that also, I mean, the 20, was it 2017 election? Was it 2017? Yeah, kind of my date. Um, like, I'm not really a supporter of the Labour Party, but I did see something quite interesting happen there in terms of what was expected and what the public opinion was expected to be, was that everyone was going to come out in droves and vote for the Tory party, and something really unexpected happened. And I think part of the reason why that was, and, and one of the things that was captured through the Labour Party's campaign, even though I've got a lot of difficulties with them, um, was they built something about um, hope and what's something alternative that could happen. And I think it really resonated people in a way that the establishment was really shocked about and did not expect in any way. And I think as well, that kind of feeds into issues around Brexit as well, to be honest. Um, that campaign wasn't really like fought on, on Brexit, but I think a lot of the reasons why people voted for Brexit were quite connected with that. Yes, people have blamed migrants for why they haven't got a job, why you know they haven't um, got decent housing, why the, 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 the schools are filled up, and why all of those things. Yes, they have blamed that, but fundamentally, I think it's possible to shift that narrative and focus on those, those things that are material things that people need in their lives Yes, um, blaming migrants is not the answer, but there's still something that needs to be addressed there. So, yeah, you can sort of argue, okay, do people accept that it's partly austerity? I think it's complicated. I think people's lives and people, the way in which people... Um, uh, uh, the way in which people sort of... What are the words I'm looking for? The, the reasons people give to these things can be quite complicated. I don't think they're static. I think in, when you're looking at communities and how they make sense of why their lives are the way they are, I don't think it's necessarily a straightforward thing of like, oh, yeah, they're just blaming migrants and it's just Brexit and it's just the EU and it's just that. I think it changes and people, like I said at the beginning, developing ways to, to manage austerity on a day-to-day -day basis and sometimes that's based on solidarity and sometimes it isn't. So... I think it's a complicated picture, personally. Did you want to follow up on yeah, that or more questions? Just very quickly, I think I, I agree with a lot of what Avia said. I think we have to look at where people are getting their information. And already you've mentioned social media. And, of course, with Brexit, there's a lot of dark money that went into manipulating the algorithms of what people were saying. And so 
you know, it's not just about the message and the framing and the resonance of that framing, but it's about where we get information, how we get that information, and how that information is manipulated and served to us. And I think that needs to be looked at as well. Mm -hmm. Olga, look, you look like you really wanted I just, to respond I think to this. Well, it's really hard to answer your question because the data doesn't exist in the UK quite well. I mean, it's a problem. We don't ask people about their, have you participated in this kind of protest? Do you know about this? We do that very poorly in the United Kingdom. And we started doing that in other contexts, like in Ukraine. And we actually find it's really important to distinguish between supporters and non-supporters as much as it is to distinguish between protesters and non-protesters. Because oddly enough, you could have protested and have very negative views of protests at the same time, and so on and so forth. So I, we, it's hard to actually know because we don't monitor this as well as we should, I think, um, in, in this okay, country. Great. We'll go to the next question which is over there. Uh, actually, there's two together again, and then I'll come back down <laughs> to the front. Um, it was the uh, green jumper. Green top. Green top. Green top. <laughs> um, hi. I think I have a question mainly to Olga, and it's about what makes um, the social movements of mass mobilization tick and what makes them successful. I understand you studied mainly... Um, social movements um, and protests that have this critical mass. What I'm interested in is how, um, like, what's the moment when they gained the critical mass? And I know um, you've shown some data that most of the people find out um, and join these protests. And the first reason was that they saw it on mass media. And then um, also there is a question of what makes mass media cover these protests. And I have a question about violence here, because I know that um, sometimes um, the idea is of journalists that if enough people get arrested at a certain protest, only then will they kind of start covering in the media and, you know, then start publicizing it and more people will join the movement. Thank you. Okay, what we're going to do, because we've only got five minutes left, is take questions group of three questions together so there was definitely one down here if we can do that and then there's two in the middle next so if we do one so one two and then one out oh, there yeah so you're number two <laughs> so, okay so one for you all go there directly yep yep you're next um, thank you for the opportunity. Um, so, first of all, I, I would like to thank Madam Labard for uh, addressing how uh, addressing the repeal of Article 377 last year. And um, we uh, back in India, we all believe that it was a very momentous occasion indeed. And uh, uh, we hope we see more of that coming soon. And it's good for once that we are setting a good example. So um, uh, <laughs> uh, now my uh, question is. Um, Professor Lankina and Dr. Onuk, uh, they had uh, alluded to how uh, protest leaders are often discredited uh, uh, during their protests by, uh, by other arguments uh, which are raised against them. For instance, back in India, we had in 2016 these protests at uh, GNU, which is a university, um, where the student leaders were, among other things, discredit discredited on the accounts of supposed promiscuity and, um, and they are, they were called anti-nationals. So uh, I would like uh, to have their comment on how uh, these protest movements could reconcile with um, allegations being raised against their whole movement and their uh, leaders. 
Okay, great. So if we go back up there, we'll take the third one and then we'll get some answers. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I am wondering if you, someone can discuss a little bit about how an ally can effectively support protests that address inequalities. Great. So that's three good questions together because critical mass, violence, discrediting legitimation and allies would all go in one group. Wow. Okay, who would like to who would like to take the how do we how do we account for maybe um, the processes of building critical mass allies? Well, I mean, it's a million pound question that you ask, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm c committing my entire life to trying to figure this out. Um, uh, I had my first idea in my first book. Now that I'm, you know, five years after that, I'm changing my opinion. But it's a long, typically there's a very long term process. So there's a movement that builds up to a moment. We typically only see the moment. Um, and then we have to work our way backwards, and I think process tracing specifically for those people who do it. Um, but this, um, I think in terms of right now, I'm working on a piece to try to understand the difference between various mass protest events in just one country. And so w understanding the process is one thing, but for activists, actually, uh, coordinating and building coalitions with various types of groups is incredibly important. And it seems that at least this analysis is showing that showing a united front is much more important. The second people see divisions is when the regimes of these various places can come in and, 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 and sow polarization between um, larger communities in, in that country. So I think that's incredibly important. When it comes to violence, there's a very mixed opinion in social science whether violence mobilizes people or whether it demobilizes people. Um, uh, we've seen some mobilization in terms of Ukraine, but we've seen a lot of demobilization, for instance, in Venezuela when violent episodes took place so um, yeah Tamila do you want to do delegitimation discrediting That's sure I think uh, it's, a, it's a great question that I'm, and I'm sure we see, although India is not technically an autocracy I'm not surprised that you see very similar patterns of delegitimation and I, I could speak for Russia that in some ways the these, these attempts are successful because one of the uh, lessons we learn from media analysis of uh, authoritarian kind of media in, in autocracies or environments where media is in some ways controlled or manipulated by the state, and I'm not sure if India kind of fits that category, is that citizens often find state-controlled media, even in authoritarian settings, as trustworthy. So in other words, they believe these stories of discreditation, and in some ways that has kind of helped delegitimize Russia's political opposition. So in, in, in that way, that is successful. But we also know that media landscapes, even in authoritarian contexts, are incredibly diverse. And it's the same for India, where you have uh, online social media incredibly popular. So there are the counter-narratives that the uh, kind of that um, social movement activists can come up with as a kind of counter to these claims. And in some ways, they're successful. Um, one example from Russia is um, Navalny, who is an anti-corruption blogger. And his, uh, he, he's very legitimate, and he manages to discredit the state's narratives because he's 
comes up, he's a lawyer by training, and he comes up with these incredible stories of corruption at the highest echelons of power that are backed with documentary evidence and legal sources. So, so there's a constant battle, I agree, and I'm, I, I can see that in India, the very similar dynamics of kind of legitimation and counter-legitimation and discreditation. That is, it's kind of a constant struggle. Okay, we have to finish now, I'm afraid, because it's 15.45. I'm just going to say to the panelists, we need to keep protesting inequalities. One word on how you would recommend how we do it, Tamila. Oh, we keep, uh, keep studying. Um, <laughs> studying, right. Keep, keep, researching, keep uh, researching this issue. I think Hold creatively, that. you get more people on board. Creatively. I think we need to listen. Listen. Bird. Humor. Humor. <laughs> Militancy. Militancy. Great. We've got the whole range. Thank you. Thank you. Nina and Maria for putting all this together. What a great family of family.